0: How many of you have had your lives touched by the magical art of tidying up the decluttering gospel of Marie Kondo? Show of hands. Okay. A few of us. If you are unfamiliar with this phenomenon, take heart. It is essentially a handy way to clean and organize your stuff and your spaces. One of her more revelatory teachings involves a new method For folding clothes. Rather than stacking clothes one on top of the other, you fold them in such a way that they stand up. This allows you to file clothes like you would in a filing cabinet. So when you open your drawer, you're able to see everything at once. This is the kind of revolutionary perspective from which Jesus is speaking in our passage today. Whereas we are used to seeing one thing at a time when we open a drawer, one thing at a time when we look at history, we see in only glimpses of others, Jesus has turned them on their side and seems to weave in and out of talking about different things in the drawer. It's the way someone talks when they're an expert in their field, seeing and communicating connections and extrapolations that we would never see on our own, It's a revelation, our sight lines are expanded, but it's a lot to take in at once. When we think of history, we think more of the pages in a history book flipping from a past to the present, one thing causing the next, but for prophetic literature, the paper is less like the flat pages in a book and more like origami, past, present, and future folded together into one shape. And the purpose of this origami is not to reveal the future like an oracle or an astrologer, we are not Marty McFly trying to buy a book that tells us what sports teams to bet on in the future. Rather, the purpose of this is to give courage to the people of God by revealing the character of God across history, past, present, and future. In the TV series The Office, bumbling boss Michael Scott receives word from the office's accountant that they have a surplus. He pretends to understand what this means, but then, as as if he's just inviting an intellectual exercise, says, why don't you explain this to me like I'm an eight-year-old? The accountant explains, pointing to different spreadsheets, which are still obviously going over his head, and then Michael says, why don't you explain this to me like I'm five? (laughs) Many times, we have the same reaction when we encounter Jesus's apocalyptic teachings. Yes, Signs and such, and the Son of Man, got it. Now explain it to me again. Jesus has turned our purview of history on its side, and while we recognize it's a revelation, we are not used to engaging from this perspective, and it can be confusing. There's beauty, and there's tension. And if it is indeed so dizzying to hear Jesus speak like this, what might we need to understand him? to receive him today and his words? Well, we need context. We need a cultivated imagination. And we need courage. First, let's look at the context of our passage. Jesus had been teaching in the temple courts, and on this particular occasion, he had heard the disciples talking about the adornment of the temple, beautiful stones and gifts dedicated to God, And in response, Jesus says, As for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Jesus knows how to build interest and intrigue. You have to give him that. His disciples asked him, When and how will we know that it's time? What's the sign? Verses 8 to 24 of Luke chapter 21 record Jesus speaking about the destruction of Jerusalem and the difficulties in the world and in the lives of Jesus' followers in that time. He instructed them to flee when armies surround Jerusalem to get out of the city. The temple was paramount for the people of God, God's dwelling place, the city of Jerusalem holy and set apart. Sacred spaces. And here's Jesus talking about its destruction and inviting the faithful to flee the iconic place of the faith. This is the end of the world as they know it. Jesus then uses that day to talk about the day, the one our passage refers to, commonly known as the day of the Lord. And there are two ways that this context, the setting, in which we receive our passage, shapes our understanding. First, we know that there are other upheavals. There are other ends that take place before the Lord's return. Second, we recognize that Jesus is bringing the disciples, and along with them, us, the church, in on something. He started this conversation with his strange pronouncement, and moved it toward this part. He's wanting to tell us this, not deigning to tell us this. The other day, I saw this large spider spinning a web. She had the spokes done and was working on connecting the spokes with her silk. I ran in and got the family and told them to come and see what was happening. But from most angles, all they could see was a spider moving in thin air erratically. No particular pattern. So I got everyone to where I was to see from the angle I had, to join me and to see what was happening. In this passage, Jesus is inviting us in. He's drawing us to his side to see his perspective. It's easy to read a passage like this and assume alienation, assume good enoughness here. If I were good enough, smart enough, this would be easy to understand rather than Jesus saying, here is something to marvel at observable and mysterious, and I want you to join me in it and know me through it. And that's the context we get brought into. The context... Maybe I'll move back a little. The context... Ah, there it is. <laughs> that's the context we get to bring with us as we read. There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars... On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming on a cloud with power and great glory. Jesus paints this epic picture, relying on our imaginations a bit to fill in the gaps. But being 21st century Austenites means our imagination is shaped a little bit differently than Jesus' original listeners. If I told you there will be signs in the stars, you might think that I was into astrology, but you might also think I was speaking about the signals, the signs, stars give us to tell their age. Bluer stars are younger, redder stars are older, there will be signs, Roaring and tossing the sea might signal to us global warming, and people fainting from terror might conjure images of the downfall of democracy. Our imagination can fill in the gaps and come up with some interesting things, but to hear Jesus' words and receive them in the way they were meant, we need to hear them with an imagination that is informed by, cultivated by the Scriptures. In cultivating this imagination, we'll look at the Old Testament since much of the new has yet to happen for the disciples at this point. And while the phrase, the day of the Lord, isn't present in our passage, it is certainly here. If I were to describe to you a day, a time when we decorate trees in our homes, put up little lights, we wrap presents and get off work and school, you would immediately know what I'm talking about. I wouldn't have to say it. Because it's obvious from a few cues. Similarly, this passage says the day of the Lord without saying it. The day of the Lord, or sometimes called the day, points to God's judgment and deliverance, a time when God mightily puts things right. We see this in Exodus, when the Israelites were delivered and Egypt was judged for its actions. We know this in part as Passover, but it was also known as the day. And you can let your mind fill with the imagery of plagues like the one of darkness, a celestial sign. We can remember how the Red Sea roared and tossed as it swallowed Pharaoh and his army. Recall how the Israelites were terrified before the sea opened, trapped as they were with death from Egypt on one side and death by drowning on the other. And yet God delivered them. The day of the Lord. The disciples would have had their imagination formed by Isaiah who prophesied against the unjust Babylonian empire saying, see, the day of the Lord is coming. He says in that day, the stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and will humble the pride of the ruthless. And Babylon, Babylon did rule over Israel, which Isaiah also prophesied, and Babylon did fall. One thing to keep in mind is that these are violent and oppressive nations. Before the day in Egypt, the Egyptians had enslaved the Israelites and were having the Israelite infant sons murdered. The Babylonians had the king of Judah's son slain, his son slain, right in front of him, and then they took his eyes out. Right afterwards, so that that would be the last thing he saw. The word ruthless indeed applies here, and it would be a gross miscarriage of justice for God to do nothing. The judgment of God is terrifying, yes, but it's ultimately and profoundly good, something with which we long for in a world full of poor judgment, injustice, and at best proximate justice. The judgment of God, though, is not the only thing that is happening on the day of the Lord. Jesus' disciples might have heard in the back of their minds the prophet Joel, who wrote, The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be deliverance. As the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls, Judgment, yes. Judgment is definitely a part of the day of the Lord. And deliverance, salvation. Bible scholars and professors, Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart, remind us as we look at these passages from the prophets, though, and I quote, it was not the prophets' primary task to predict the distant future. They did indeed predict future events, but for the most part, that future is now past. That is, they spoke of coming judgment or salvation in the relative immediate future of Israel, not of our own future. There are more and more references, and as you engage in Scripture, engage especially in the Old Testament and in the book of Revelation, you will see these images used as the unfolding day of the Lord, cultivating your imagination. But with even these few passages, we have enough to see that what Jesus is talking about here isn't some Hollywood blockbuster like Armageddon, nor some useless, inscrutable oracle. Rather, we see Jesus in our passage as giving shape to what has long been hoped for and feared, judgment and deliverance. And while his hearers would have initially been primed for this, like all the other prophecies, to be very near, maybe a prophecy against Rome the present oppressive empire, they hear not only is there a day of upheaval and judgment coming, first it's coming for Jerusalem, if you remember from our context, but there is also another day that is taking shape farther out, that extends into and possibly beyond our own future. Jesus uses for himself the title Son of Man, in the Gospel of Luke, on multiple occasions referencing himself. So when the disciples hear him say, and then the Son of Man is coming, they would know he is referencing himself. But as he describes the Son of Man coming on the clouds, the sign of authority, these clouds, heavenly, heavenly honor and authority here, they recall the images from the prophet Daniel Jesus takes these known pieces these days of the Lord that are near and this image of the son of man going to the age of days and he turns them on their side and he says yes and there is a day coming out a day when it won't just be another day of deliverance but it will be the day of deliverance it will be done it will be finished And it is not just that the Son of Man is going to receive that authority. He will come back with that authority. He will bring the fullness of that everlasting kingdom on that day. So we have a little bit of the context. Jesus bringing us to his side to see what's to come. We have a little bit more of a cultivated imagination, and we see with his disciples that final day of judgment and deliverance coming, preceded, yes, by upheaval and difficulty, but marked by Jesus' power and great glory. That day is our Advent hope. That is the hope, the hope of our return of our king in judgment and deliverance and his everlasting good. And we receive this passage, and we receive more than context, and we need more than context for it, and we need more than a cultivated imagination. We also need courage to engage his words today. Jesus says, When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. There's an invitation to respond. And I love this image, this portrait of courage. We literally make portraits of our historical greats where they pose like this, headed to victory, looking off into the distance with a face set like flint. But more than a power pose, per se, Jesus is inviting them, inviting us, to do what is counterintuitive to the situation as we see it. To do what is counterintuitive to what our eyes can perceive but to do what is fully appropriate to the situation as he sees it. Set side by side the word Jesus gives to the disciples about the fall of Jerusalem and the words about this ultimate day of the Lord. If we take those pieces together, it's fascinating to see the instruction Jesus gives them. In one, at the fall of Jerusalem, he says, flee the city, right? Not exactly, if I showed you a painting of someone fleeing the city, you would not think there's a portrait of courage. (laughs) Sensible, possibly, (laughs) but not very courageous. (laughs) But in this case, again, the impression might be a little bit misleading. What Jesus has called them to do when he calls them to flee is the opposite of the impression that painting might give. Cities were, in fact, the best defense. They were places of safety. To be within the city walls was to be protected, to do the sensible thing. You would never flee a fortified city like Jerusalem in a conflict because you could be captured or killed out in the open. You were more vulnerable if you left. But Jesus says, I see the bigger picture. And you need to do the courageous and counterintuitive thing and leave the city. In the day of the Lord, while everything around us says cower, Jesus wants his people to counterintuitively Stand up and lift up our heads. And it's not because you're getting your portrait painted as one of the greats, but because your redemption is drawing near. We stand and lift up our heads because we are awaiting and heralding the arrival of Jesus. We stand not because of our greatness, but because of His. And it's His greatness that gives us that courage to stand. Receiving Jesus and his words today, we remember the Lord who calls us to counterintuitive behavior in light of his view of reality. And this is right in line with how Jesus leads. We don't need to suss out what counterintuitive looks like because he's demonstrated it for us, led us into it. We're not trying to be counterintuitive on our own. We don't hear the GPS instructing us turn left and say, nope, I go right because I follow Jesus. <laughs> no, it's not counterintuitive for counterintuitive sake. And we just need to figure it out. Rather, it's that revelation, that peeling back of the curtain that informs our decisions to live contrary to what is observable. Save your life by clinging to your life that's intuitive. Save your life by losing your life, that's counterintuitive. Where the intuitive way is to amass more, Jesus calls his followers to share and give away. Where holding grudges feels like it protects us, Jesus helps us to see that it enslaves us, and he calls us to forgive We tenaciously seek to bring healing, live ethically, and pursue justice, knowing all the while these efforts are incomplete and will only find ultimate fulfillment in Jesus' return. Advent hope itself is counterintuitive. It's counterintuitive first because we start the liturgical year, the liturgical new year, in a month before the end of the calendar year. It doesn't make sense. This is minor, but I just want to name it nonetheless. <laughs> Advent does not fit in with the rest of our culture's rhythms. There are also a lot of reasons it's hard to have Advent hope. We are thankful for the verdict in the Ahmad Aubrey case, and yet we remember that it wasn't until there was a public outcry that arrests were made. Yesterday, the New York Times published an article about the affordable housing crisis here in Austin, which surprises none of us. People were being pushed out of the city. This weekend, news broke of a new COVID variant in South Africa. Thanksgiving and family gatherings might have been a bright spot, and it might have been a place of wounding or a place where brokenness was revealed. Over all this, it's been nearly 2,000 years and Jesus has not yet returned. The intuitive thing, the thing our senses and logic and the world around would say, is that Jesus is not coming back. All that there is, is what we can see and what we can make of it. That's what our senses tell us. It is counterintuitive to have Advent hope. And yet that is the perspective Jesus draws us into, draws us to his side to see, one in which we see the whole of human history playing out and the certainty of his return. Heaven and earth will pass away, Jesus says, but my words will never pass away. There's a lot of activity in the season, getting holiday ducks in a row and finishing semesters and fourth quarters And it's all too easy to approach this season with a mentality of, if I don't get this done, or if this doesn't go well or finish well, the ship has sunk. It's all too easily a season of trying to save ourselves with frantic activity undergirded with fear. Unsurprisingly, this leads us to neglect our life with Jesus, to be harsh with the people around us, and to ignore the poor entirely. What might it look like for you to engage this season with Advent hope? With a longing for Jesus and your actions enlivened by the knowledge that one day all will be made right? Father Peter's email this past Friday had some wonderful practical suggestions, and I invite you to revisit them and consider how you might live into this counterintuitive hope. It's easy to miss emails the Friday after Thanksgiving. (laughs) Take a look back. One of the things he mentioned that I do want to highlight, though, is something you're doing right now, and that's to participate in the church's worship on Sunday mornings. Our message today mentioned uh, context, cultivated imagination, and courage. And I can think of no better practice that roots us in our context cultivates our imagination, and gives us courage than the local people of God gathered around word and sacrament, about scriptures, around scripture-soaked liturgy and song, and around one another in prayer and presence. Together, let us embrace the hope of Advent, the hope of Christ's return, and let us boldly pray solemn prayers of the upheaval of the world knowing that our redemption draws near. Come, Lord Jesus. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.